Hey there, it's Matt. Welcome to the Food Under Fire podcast where we explore grace and resilience in the food system. I am so excited about today's episode. It was one of the most unexpected and enjoyable conversations I've ever had on this show. Not only did I share quite a bit in common with my guest, but he also got pretty vulnerable near the end, and he really helped me understand how hard this pandemic has been on food industry workers. Time and time again, I've had conversations with folks about why this year has been so hard for bars and restaurants, but it never really connected with me like the way it did when I spoke with this man. Late last year, my guest wrote a piece for the Pioneer Press, which is a media outlet here in St. Paul, Minnesota. Before meeting him, I read the piece, and then I reread it, and then I picked out different lines that really spoke to me, and I thought about how I could implement these lines in our conversation. I'm going to read an excerpt from the piece because it really demonstrates what hospitality workers are going through. He writes, The negative impact of the recent shutdowns on the mental health of my Minnesota hospitality family members is spreading faster than the coronavirus that caused it. Most of us fell in love with restaurant work when we realized that it was our way to give, to be useful, if not to the hungry guests at tables in the dining room, then to the cooks and dishwashers and service staff, sweating it out, toiling and laughing next to us. Hospitality work provided thousands of us the first opportunity in life to prove that we could be relied upon. We want to be here to provide the flavors and fellowship that will celebrate the end of these long months of pain and madness. But without your help, we won't be. We'll just be dusty dining rooms, papered windows, locked doors, and memories. today's episode be sure to follow the podcast on the official instagram page which you can now find at food under fire pod you can find it on facebook as well under the same name keep in mind that i recently launched a patreon for the podcast patreon is a service where for as little as three dollars a month you can get access to bonus content and merch it's optional but if you're interested visit patreon.com food under fire That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash food under fire. Find the link in the description as well. And of course, if you enjoy the show, consider subscribing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You could also share with a friend or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Food Under Fire was recently featured in the top 100 food programs across all of Apple Podcasts, and that's all thanks to you rating the show, downloading, and listening. And I can't thank you enough. The history of Twin Cities food and drink is a storied one, full of iconic restaurants and people. And one of the most iconic pairings 
was J.D. Fratsky and Tim Niver at Strip Club Meat and Fish in St. Paul. place opened in 2008 and thrived for nearly 10 years until the pair decided to amicably part ways to work on other things. But this is only one small piece of JD's career, like a really small piece. He's been working in and opening restaurants in Minnesota for his entire life. He's even mentored his fair share of chefs, including St. Paul's very own celebrity chef, Justin Sutherland. Like many in his profession, J.D. has taken many risks. He's been ambitious. Some things have worked, some things haven't. But whenever something didn't work, it wasn't long before he moved on to the next thing and found success. But during 2020, it wasn't that simple. industry he so loved was stripped away from him. He wasn't sure where to look next. And before he knew it, he began to confront things that were lurking underneath the surface. He had to face a darkness that was able to rear its face because for the first time in his life, JD wasn't working. 2020 became a time of reflection, searching, discovery. Soon enough, JD began to work with friends in the industry like Brian Ingram and Justin Sutherland to make things better for his peers. But it's been a lot to process. I wanted to meet up with JD and see how he was feeling. I didn't want to read some piece that he wrote online. I wanted to hear him from his own words. JD and I scheduled our conversation for 10 a.m. on a Tuesday at the Gnome Pub in St. Paul. When I left, I began to talk on a subject that should be familiar if you're a frequent listener. Okay, so I know I've brought this up for the past, what, like three episodes in a row. (laughs) I always open it up like this, but I can't help it. This is my favorite topic. People, the weather. Oh my God, last week when I went to interview Rob Bathe, it was negative 14. Right now, it's nearly 40 degrees. I am so I got there early, so I played solitaire on my phone while I waited. By the way, I've been playing a lot of solitaire recently. Anyways, after I hit a stalemate in the game, I see JD pull up to the Gnome parking lot and get out of his car. How's it going, JD? Good, how about you? Pretty good. We walk in and I realize that I haven't been inside the Gnome for years. Not since the original ownership where it was known as the Happy Gnome. It has a classic pub atmosphere with a German Minnesotan aesthetic. We walk upstairs and he shows me around. He then offers me coffee. I set up and we start with music. Well, yeah, the, well, there was my favorite, 
my favorite band back in high school uh, was Descendants, and they they were out of Southern California, um, and they but they like you know sang all they sang songs about girls and heartbreak, but they also sang songs about road tripping and drinking a lot of coffee. And, you know, so my friends and I were always coming up here to see shows. So that was like right up our alley. You know, that was those songs were like liturgy <laughs> for us. Um, and then but yeah, later on, like I, you know, not knowing what you want to what you not knowing what you want to do with your life when you're a teenager and loving music and loving film and all that stuff. Like, I mean, I, I was like, yeah, I would I want to be in a band. I love music. I love writing poetry. I, you know. And uh, I sing along with, you know, songs and I'm road tripping by myself. So, yeah, I, uh, uh, I was in a couple bands up here in my late teens and early 20s. And it just kind of petered out, you know, like it got to that point where, you know, instead of having four part time jobs, I should probably get one full time one and one part time one, you know, like so. And that just didn't allow for much. time. In fact, uh uh, years later, when I got my first kitchen management job at Chino Latino, my cousin Eric Frotsky, who is uh, amazing, amazingly intelligent, super talented uh, musician, was forming a band. And he asked me to sit in on their first couple of rehearsals because he he was thinking maybe there, you know, there could be some kind of like spoken word element or maybe some vocals that went along with this like super heavy, dark jazz metal that he was doing. And uh and as much as I wanted to do it and as much as I loved the idea of being creative with my cousin, Eric, I, I had, like I said, I had just gotten my first like real salaried sous chef job. And it was like, it, that was, that was kind of a moment in my life. That was just like, I have to choose professionalism over impulse at this point, <clears throat> you know? I mean, you know, being married was a part of that too. And, you know, there were just, and like I said, not anybody who can make, I mean, I, I so admire any, anybody who can make music professionally, you know, like yeah. who can, who can right. work those two things together. I mean, you know, a completely creative life, keeping a roof over your head is that's kind of what, you know, that's the gold standard, right? I mean, isn't that what a lot of people want? So I, but again, like it just where I was going, that piece of the puzzle didn't fit. And the cool part about it too, is at that time, I just also remember thinking like, you know, this doesn't mean I can never do this again. This doesn't mean I'm saying goodbye to it permanently. It just means that right now, this is where I know I'm supposed to go. And that, and at what age was this? I was 20, 27, 26, 26. Yes. Because, and th- I don't do this often. I swear I do not do this often, but, uh, I read a lot of things you wrote online, whether that was on your Instagram page or, or pieces that were written about you or pieces that you wrote. And there are several things that I'm really fascinated about that I want to touch on. <laughs> okay. And the reason why I asked about your age is because I read this one thing where you said at, at, at age 19 or something around that you were in this stage of being spiritually aggressive. And I was really curious <laughs> about what you meant by that. And I was And I asked that because I was wondering if you felt that same spiritual aggression, whatever that means to you around that time of career transition. That's a, those are a very interesting pairing of words (laughs) that I would love to uh, kind of pick your brain about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was, I'm wondering, did that, did that fade off by the time you were in your late twenties and making that career change or did that remain or was it stronger? I'm really curious. I think I remember saying that 
for an interview with the Minivangelist when I was uh, down in Cannon Falls. I, I think that's where that came up. And we were talking about my upbringing in Winona. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm fifth generation German-American, east side of Winona. Um, you know, my, my mom and dad both grew up in Winona and are both still there. Um, you know, th- that that Mississippi River Valley and and that culture has huge I mean that those are where my roots are that's got everything to do with who I am and like I used to joke all the time that my uh I've got you know I swallowed so much Mississippi River water when I was a kid that my daughter's (laughs) half walleye but uh when I meant by spiritually aggressive was the fact that you know I I felt that when I was coming up I felt that my that life down there was very two-dimensional and you know of course it wasn't I just didn't have the tools yet to understand how much you know i completely took for granted the fact that some of the most beautiful square miles on god's green earth are in that mississippi river valley you know but i had been out there every day of my life you know well you know what i mean i'd been out there so often when i was a kid that it was something that i just kind of took for granted and i didn't really realize how much i missed it until years later but i you know talking earlier about you know feeling creative bones and, and, and really wanting to go somewhere with my life and, and see the big wide world out there. Um, I wanted to, to taste and feel and experience a lot of things that I, that I couldn't find there. So I, uh, I pursued a lot of different, as many different things as I could find, um, moving forward, like as far as literature goes and film and, but music really resonated with me, you know, especially starting skateboarding at, at, you know, age 12 or whenever that is, that was like, you know, that was bacon and eggs, peanut butter and jelly with skateboarding and and music. And, uh, so just that was kind of a vehicle for me to explore the world was like, okay, you know, leaving when I wanted to come up here and see shows. And then once I did move up here, seeing shows and actually meeting people from different parts of the country who created music and, and, different kinds of art elsewhere that was as far as being spiritually aggressive goes like that that terminology i i just knew there was a there was a huge world out there that i wanted to tap into and experience um and music was one of the only things that made a you know skinny dopey looking marginalized 14 year old boy feel beautiful you know yeah no, I asked because I, I found that turn to be really interesting because in a weird way, I relate to it in my own mind in a way, trying to connect with some sort of, whether that be art or whether that be a show like this, doing something that connects me to something greater as a way to better understand the world and, and, and understand my place in it. Because I, I, yeah. I do certain things that help me do that. Like I, on the side make music for fun and it's for no other reason than to just feel some sort of uh connect to some sort of different realm and to kind of add greater perspective to my life same with this like yeah with this with this program talking to different people understanding their motivations who they are and what they do helps me connect to the community in a way that adds a lot of texture to my life i you got to spread out your bandwidth you know what i mean and i think there's I believe anyway that there's this myth out there that, you know, you can't have it both ways that there is like, you know, you're either you're either single minded or you're a mile wide and inch deep. And I and I don't believe that I I I believe that, you know, I believe that it's much like a cataract or a watershed. You know, there are 
deeper gorges that water runs through and there are smaller tributaries that go off here and there but eventually it's all coming from one source and going to another right you know and and i i think it's our job to find out which ones of those make us feel most beautiful and help the most people out no no surprise that you feel that way because uh i could tell by your <laughs> by your ig that you're very much into zen which is really cool because yeah. that is something that has helped guide my life in a lot of ways i mean i am I'm in my late twenties. I don't know shit about life, but uh, in the in the short time that I've been here, uh, up, uh, adhering to those principles and understanding mindfulness and having a practice, specifically a meditation mm-hmm. practice, has helped me stay really grounded and has helped me kind of p- prioritize what I truly believe in and what I what truly what I truly gravitate towards instead of getting caught up in the noise that is so prevalent in 21st mm-hmm. century culture. How did you first get turned on to it? Like how, how were you introduced to, to Zen and, and Buddhism? Oh, wow. Very rare that I'm actually asked a question on this show. So that's kind of cool. I appreciate yeah. that. Oh, um, for sure. No, uh, it was, I mean, I see from your hat that you, you've got Scani in you somewhere. Yeah. So. And so I grew up, I, I did grow up in Wisconsin. Whereabouts? Uh, uh, Milwaukee area. Okay. Um, kind of the suburbs of Milwaukee. And My wife is from Marshfield. Okay. And Winona is right across the river from La Crosse. So, so uh, my life, uh, life story can get kind of long, so I'll, tr- I'll try to ab- make it a bridge. So long story short, uh, I go northwest to Menominee to a school called UW-Stout because mm-hmm. I think I want to be a dietitian. I take organic chemistry and then I realize I don't want to be a dietitian. <laughs> I switch to communications. I go through this kind of like existential crisis thing where I switch to communications, but even still, I just don't know what I want to do. And that kind of plunged me into a mini de- despair cycle, depression cycle, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. And I just felt kind of lost and I just didn't understand how to, uh, I didn't, I just didn't know of any kind of outlets for my feelings. So, one day my friend recommended to me that I try meditation and he recommended that to me because there was a meditation community or a Zen Buddhist community right outside of town in Downsville called Red Cedar Buddha Sangha. Oh, I didn't know that. And it was cool. there that I uh, made some of the greatest friendships of my life. None And none of them were under the age of 55. They were all older people who have experienced mm-hmm. my lifetime several times over and they all became kind of spiritual mentors and friends to me. Actually... One of the unique, most unique friendships I made there at that time, he was in his mid to late eighties. He's now, uh, I think he's in his nineties now. I don't know. Uh, that's where I met Alex Roberts' dad, oh, and cool. I developed a really close. Uh, his name is Don. I yeah, developed Don's a, a great guy. Man. Developed a really close relationship with him. He calls me like every week, every other week. About he's he's always trying to stay up to date on tech and stuff, and he knows that. He knows that my my actual job, I work in the cryptocurrency industry, so he knows sure. that I'm on top of things. So like, <laughs> he's always calling me to keep on top of shit, and like he'll say, Matthew, I read something in Time Magazine. You need to explain this to me. I'm like, Don, I I haven't read Time Magazine in ever. <laughs> he's like, Matthew, you need to go to your local newsstand and pick up Time. I was like, I, Don, I haven't seen a newsstand in my life. Anyways, uh, so I made all these really close friendships at this community, and that was where I kind of fell in love with Zen and, and meditation because. Here I was with this group of people who are multiple times older than me, and they were extremely chill, extremely thoughtful, and just really beautiful, warm souls. And I kind of got connected to it through that way, and it just became a part of my life. And it has changed over the years. But then I moved to Minnesota, and then I got involved with Dharma Field okay. over there. And I and I and that was actually one of the greatest tragedies of the pandemic for me because I was going there every Sunday for group yeah. meditation. 
you know, these meditation places, they're, it's mostly old people. Like, mm-hmm. they're all, most of them are over 60. I, of course, there's few people of my age, few people in their 30s and 40s, but it's mostly older folks. And you, ju- you just can't have a meditation community or group anymore with a pandemic like this. It's oh. just, it's just out of the question. So Ma- I, yeah, so masks. I lost that and they, they do it over zoom now, but they just do teachings and readings over zoom and I'm losing out on the group meditation thing, which is incredibly there, powerful. That so. the, the energy that, that you both create and absorb in a room like that is palpable. You know, like it, it is, there's, you know, it is. It's, I mean, obviously, it's you know, it's it's chi. It's you know, key. It, it, you know, it's that it's that it's that positive energy that actually gives you the ability to 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 heal and to grow and to do things. But also, there's there's something celestial that happens there that that allows you in a group like that to get into that sensation faster and 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 channels a little bit quicker. In my opinion, I mean, like you know, I when I first started practicing meditation, I was doing it on my own. I was just figuring it out on my own through like books I would, I would pick up and just trying it out. You know, it was something I felt like I knew it was something I felt like I needed to do. I I needed a huge change in my life. And then it wasn't until much later when I actually, I had to work up the courage to go to some of the places in the twin cities. I can relate to that. Yeah. I was a little bit intimidated at first too. Super intimidating. You know, there's one place in particular that like, you know, not, and, and this is probably 80% all me, but there's just one place I've gone to that I've never, ever felt super comfortable there. Like I've, I've always felt like it was kind of an insular community and it's just, you know, Buddhism and Zen practice are just like anything else. They're, they're individual and they're, they're, uh, they're, you know, uh, mini cultures, you know, associated with everything. I mean, there, you can go to a small town and go to six different churches and you're going to find one that you just don't like, you know, that there's just something wrong about the energy there. And that doesn't mean that it's, it means that it's not for you. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that it's not for you, you know? And the more we, I think the more we, the more of those we experience, the more we learn to pay attention to them. And there's no shame whatsoever in saying no, you know? Yeah. Are you a journaling guy? Uh, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. what I figured. Yeah. Because it's, it's been meditation and journaling that has helped me make the most sense of my life for sure. And yep. I picked them up around the same time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there, there, there's something about the stillness of meditation and resting in that peace. And then the, I don't know, the rationalization or the, the, the fleshing out of your thoughts on the paper, those two practices and like combined, oh man, if everyone in the world did those two things, I mean, <laughs> the world would be a different place. I, I agree with you completely. The, the thing about it too is like, you know, there's a, to me though, there's a, um, and I think, I think this is something that I have only really learned through, through marriage and, and, and fatherhood to, to some extent too, is that while those two things are like, while meditation and journaling are incredibly important and they are very necessary, taking what you get out of those and engaging them in your life, like, you know, if, if we don't use a journal, our thoughts get trapped in our head, right? And then they can become a jumble and, you know, we kind of lose the ability to see clearly sometimes. So like the ability to write out what you're thinking about and what you're observing in life and, and how you feel about it allows you to like verbally communicate that or, or tangibly communicate that to people around you. Um, there's, there's a danger, I think, sometimes in you can get a little too self-absorbed and, and in, like an insular if 
you just keep focusing everything that you look and see and experience and feel into the words that one keeps in a journal, I think, you know, I mean, I just, I, I think a lot of, you know, for instance, like, you know, whenever I, whenever I really uh, like someone's writing, I want to find out what that person is about. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, there are like writers from years ago, obviously there are biographies around them. And then there are certain writers who write so autobiographically, autobiographically, even if it's fiction, you kind of find out what kind of person they are. And, you know, you see all these creative types all the time, you know, admitting either through conflict in their stories or just flat out as a form of self-deprecation that they spend too much time in their head, you know, and that, that keeps people that they love from yeah. getting in, you know, and, and, and that's tough. I mean, like, you know, while, while all those art forms like writing and music and, and, and painting and, and any of those things, while those are all beautiful and noble, noble pursuits, your first job is still to be part of the world with the people that love you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. To, to bring those. Cause I, that is, that's honestly something I struggle with. I kind of get a little bit too insular with some of this stuff yeah. sometimes. And again, I'm very young. I don't have those types of responsibilities that come with family. So I'm, I'm, I'm able to practice that with my own family. Like I have a very close bond with my family. I'm the oldest of five and my parents oh, wow. are still together. They still love each other. So like I still, I, we just did like a, uh, FaceTime last night with all six of us. Um, and those moments are really special to me. And in those moments I can practice being present and, mm-hmm. and, and, and taking my insights and projecting them outwards. But yeah, you're right. There is something about, you know, having a wife or a child where you can truly practice those things. And I also wanted to circle back to, it's funny that you've mentioned autobiographies and these guys getting too insular and spending too much time in their head. <laughs> Because you you literally just described one of the books I read last year, which is the uh, autobiography of Carl Jung, and he okay. was <laughs> the definition of that. Oh yeah, because I mean that guy was just uh, one of the greatest psychologists of all time. But oh my god, like most of his life was spent in his head, and he admitted that in the end at the beginning of his book, he said mm-hmm. um, in his mind he doesn't find his external life to be very interesting, but it was his internal life where more things seemed to occur. Like the, the, his internal life was busier than his external life, which is a crazy statement coming from Young because he's been all around the world. He's right. made all these incredible breakthroughs and and writings in psychology. Yet internally, it was busier than that. Right. So that's crazy. Totally. To me. I mean, well, think about you know when it comes to Young, and I don't know as much about him as I'm sure you do, having read his autobiography. Um, but I mean, think about how how much his ideas and his methods influenced and continue to influence generations of literature today. I mean, like, you know, I know uh, in particular that one of my favorite writers, uh, Herman Hesse was, uh, Oh my gosh. He was, um, he was cured from some of his anxieties, not cured, but he was heavily influenced by uh, Jungian analysis. And that led to him writing uh, Damien and Steppenwolf. I just read Steppenwolf last month. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Steppenwolf is an amazing book. I still, uh, there are, two books of his that are still my favorites. Damien is the first one that I wrote on recommendation of a, of a, one of my, of one of my best friends who was actually studying in Germany at the time. And then, so I just for literally two years, like I devoured everything of his that I could find. Like, and it's great too, because since no, (laughs) there were like so many used Herman Hesse books in used bookstores all over campus because, you know, he's taught so much in so many different levels or he's, his literature is, um, so I amassed this huge Herman Hesse library, but there was a book that I stumbled across that was a collection of 
three novellas and one of them was Klein und Wagner and it was about a, a bureaucrat, a, a banker, I believe, living in southern Germany who just becomes uh, terrified and overwhelmed by this very mundane life. He leaves, embezzles a bunch of money and heads across the border to Switzerland to start this secret life over again. Um, and, you know, when you're 20, 21 years old, you know, there's almost kind of a secret agent feel to that. You know, that that's that's adventure, you know, like it's not easy for one to process at that age the pain that you inflict on the people you leave behind when you do something like that. But the idea of starting fresh is so appealing and, and the idea of like kicking open a door that allows you to really understand who you are and what you want, you know, that gets explored a lot in that story. Um, and also the consequences that come along with that, you know, and that is a recurring theme in a lot of Hess's work. But again, going back to what you were saying about, you know, Jung admitting how, how much his insular thinking affected, you know, his life and his relationships with everybody. Um, that was definitely something that Hesse brought up time and time again was, you know, this just life of the mind. And he freely admitted that again, like that's where he felt, that's where he felt most productive and most in touch with the cosmos. You know, yeah. My favorite book by him. This is turning into the literary podcast. <laughs> but my favorite book by him is Siddhartha. Um, yeah, the last fourth of that book is so utterly beautiful to me. Yeah. So yeah, he's he's yeah he's certainly a, a great example. And then you're you were kind of speaking about in, in a young age having like your doors blown open by something. I again literary podcast now. I I think what really kicked off my literary curiosity from reading books in high school, blah, blah, blah. This is so mm -hmm. boring to a thirst for knowledge and understanding the world and who I am. It was Albert Camus' The Stranger. Like, yeah. I don't know if you're <laughs> that one. Yeah, we had to read that in high school too. You though. had to read that in high school. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I certainly a different curriculum I went through because I don't think they would have ever uh, recommended that book. But that one was a crazy one for me. And that one helped me really think about, okay, why am I here and where's my place in the world, <laughs> which right. was a really big question to ask. This was, uh, after graduating high school, I did a few years of community college cause I just didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. And that was a huge book that kind of, uh, put a fire under my ass and was kind of woke me up a little bit. I was like, Oh, okay. I got to figure things out now. Well, it's funny, you know, like, like I said, at age 12, 13, you know, uh, I, my friends and I started skateboarding and, you know, you couldn't you couldn't listen to heavy metal anymore if you were a skater like it had to be like punk rock and 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 the, I'm because I'm talking this is like 1986 and so you know in Winona Minnesota it was really hard to get any like real punk rock music there were a couple record stores in lacrosse and several up here that we would go to but since we couldn't drive there was few and far between so like the few alternative music uh that we could get our uh, albums that we could get our hands on were found at like, you know, the local record store. And one of them was uh, the cures staring at the sea collection of singles. And the first oh, I'm song, familiar with that the one first song on the album is killing an Arab and killing uh, an Arab is about the stranger. I've heard that one. Yeah. So we, we couldn't like, it was, it's so funny. And like a bunch of these, you know, like little skater punk rock guys are like, Oh, I heard that in tenth grade. In tenth grade, you get to read the Stranger, the one that you know we, that the Cure's Killing an Arab song is written about. So, like, we were actually excited 
to like get into this this literature class in 10th grade like couldn't wait to get in there so we could read the stranger and then some of us of course like you know small town library you go and the stranger is always checked out because they have one copy of it and um you know but again like that was you know i i look back on those times now and i i I realize how truly fortunate we were you know in this town of 24 23,000 people you know how like talk you know like i mentioned earlier about doors getting kicked open like skateboarding kicked open so many doors to a larger world for so many of us in that town like a lot of the friends that i've that i've maintained relationships with you know well into parenthood and adulthood um are are still out there finding adventure and tearing it up you know between snowboarding and hiking and, and mountain biking and stuff like that but all of us saw this bigger world that was out there because of the kinds of music that we listened to you know we weren't just listening to what was being doled out to us on the radio or on mtv you know like we were we would find something and then eventually that would lead to something else like oh these guys are on the same record label their their music is really good if not better and then you'd explore that and you know everybody you know sitting there with magnifying glasses reading liner notes you know making connections between this and this and that and you know it it just it really kept you we were we were so insatiable you know we were so curious about you know how much better can this get all the time you know when it was like can can I find even better music? And then as music would change, and like you know, uh, we started listening to grunge well before you know Nirvana's Nevermind album came out. You know, and um, it was just a, this constant adventure and this constant you know uh, desire to explore what else was out there and, and how much it could give us and how you know much it could make us feel you know wonderful and beautiful. Yeah, there there is something to be said about because I I have that natural really strong curious inclination too and music has always been a great outlet for that Mm -hmm. always discovering what's next or what's new or what's cool and i have to say i have a record player and i have a record collection and there's nothing better than getting a new record and like kind of going through the liner notes because it really just satisfies your curiosity about that album that band maybe the history of the album and sometimes you really luck out where it'll have like the story of the album printed oh yeah that's oh we would like go oh my god the lyrics are actually in it you know like because we'd always get like you know somebody like literally somebody would literally put two boom boxes together like we didn't have even have the side-by-side tape deck you know thing where it would actually like so we would put like two boom boxes together one would record the other one would play and you'd see you'd get like all this background noise and you'd hear someone yelling at someone in the next room on it while you're listening to it in your bedroom three days later but um, you know, but we would, we'd look at that and we would make all these connections, you know, like 15 year old kids sitting in the shadow of a movie theater, making connections between, uh, these two bands who were, who was seemingly so different, but had the same producer on their albums. You know, like we understood that we understood that there was something there. Like we understood, you know, what a producer did, a producer helps, you know, you know, forge the direction of the album. You know, how did he do it so differently with, with the cult than he did with, uh, I don't know, the sisters of mercy or whatever like that, you know, when we were coming up. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that like, you know, one of the things that whenever I talk to friends about music and, and how much it ended up meaning to me and, and how much it saved me in so many ways, you know, when you're growing up in an environment like that, it's, it becomes a roadmap. You know, it, the the songs and the lyrics and the the feeling that that music gives you inside your chest and in the back of your head and at the end of your fingertips you know it, it can give somebody who doesn't isn't particularly happy about the life that they lead you know when they're constantly being told you know 
you're not good enough. You don't belong here. You know, the things that you want out of your life don't have any connection to the way the real world works. You know, when you're constantly beaten down with that day after day after day, it's that it's an outlet and then it's escape and it's, it's an escape, but it's also a roadmap. You know, it's one of the few things in the world that can make, you know, like I said earlier, uh, a really out of place and hopeless 14 year old boy feel beautiful. You know what I mean? And when you see that there's a big, larger world out there that you know you belong in and you can connect to, that's motivation. Like, you know, I, I can get through this. There is, I just, I have to get, you know, I have to get through this school year and into summer where I can skateboard every day and feel better and go out in the river and, and go swimming with my friends. You know, and then I have to get through one more year of, you know, of, of bullying and bad classes and teachers who don't understand what I want out of life. And then I'll get through another, like, constantly looking for that music that gives you the the energy and the fuel to do that is one of the ways that that keeps you going like that when i you know when i was coming up we loved fugazi for and ian mckay and uh and guy picciato for for being our big brothers that way you know like they they refused to let any club they performed in charge more than five dollars for a cover charge and they uh they wouldn't let any club uh have a 21 and older show it had to be an all ages show every time because he very firmly believed that you know the younger members of of our culture are the ones who needed the music the most and i i think he's absolutely right and the cool part about that for me is like you know even though it's for the most part a completely different genre of music um i see that in my daughter right now too for all the garbage that everybody has been dealing with over the past year of this pandemic and for her to get her life ripped away from her. You know, your friends are your whole life when you're, oh, yeah. when you're, you know, yeah. in your middle teenage years, you know, you don't have a job. You don't, you, you don't, you can't drive yet, you know? So your friends and seeing your friends at school and staying in communication with them when, when that energy, like we talked about in a meditation yeah. environment, when, when that energy that you get from around your friends is taken away from you, that is heavy. You know, and but she's got music that helps keeps her imagination alive and helps her connect with the feelings that she has, even if the feelings that she have are best manifested by Motley Crue and ACDC. Is that what she's <laughs> listening to? That is so hilarious. So she's not really listening to anything contemporary and stuff like that. She does. Okay. I mean, she listens to some contemporary stuff. Um, but uh, it is. It's funny, like because we great. can, you know. We can rock like her and I are running errands or if I'm teaching her how to drive. I mean, we can rock out a little bit. You know what? <laughs> like the last time we went for uh, for driving lessons in our neighborhood, uh, we we were listening to Skid Row Pandora. Wow. So. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Was not expecting that. I guess you're teaching her well then. I yeah. mean, well, I, it comes from her dad. Were you guys listening to this? This I need to get this out of my head. I keep thinking about sure. this. Two bands I love from that era. I'm wondering... I always like to talk to people who were growing up around that time because I, I've stumbled across a lot of bands from that time, and I'm always wondering how popular they were and how much people are listening to them. Were you guys listening to Husker Du and the Minutemen a lot? Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that Zen Arcade and uh, Double Nickels on the Dime. Oh just... man, Double Nickels on the Dime is a masterpiece. Oh yeah, yeah, that was you know, and it was it was so crazy too. Like I don't know if you know about the conspiracy theory that was associated with D Boone's death. No, not really. So no. you know, he died in a van accident, from what I understand. And there was, because so many of his lyrics, like the big stick for, uh, uh, they say we hold the big stick over there, was about the proxy wars down in uh, Central America during the Reagan era. 
so there was this there was this theory that the that he was actually killed by the U.S. government because oh my he, he was creating like this, and I mean it. Who's to say whether he did or not? But he was like again, like we were getting woken up to a lot of those ideas. Why D Boone got taken out and not someone like Jello Biafra from Dead Kennedys was who was a lot more overt in the way that really? he felt yeah, about government. Seriously, um, is it? But also like that was like we couldn't believe like you know again okay. So we couldn't believe how many people listened to Husker Du. Like, oh, they're a Minnesota band. You know, and then when we would see them played on MTV, we're like, oh, wow. You know, that must have felt really cool and, as a kid. <laughs> yeah. You know, and but to, to find out even much later, like how many people they influenced and, and how many oh, copycat bands out there, like they were the first punk rock power trio, you know, and one of them anyway. And I and then later on in life. So I'm at. Uh, the restaurant I had a partnership with in St. Paul for 10 years, the strip club meat and fish. Um, I'm at the bar one day and uh, Greg Norton sits down, the bass player from Husker Du. And he had, I knew that he was in the hospitality industry and I knew that he was a chef and worked in kitchens. In fact, a, a, an old, really? an old friend of mine worked under him in a kitchen once. And I just remember he's like, yeah, Greg Norton from Husker Du is my boss, you know? And, <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, like I, I knew he was around, but he had moved into uh, um, into wine sales, and he oh, just wow. sat down at a bar one night and he was checking it out. He's like, "Hey, I wanted to know if um, I wanted to know if I could uh, uh, maybe talk to one of the guys who's in charge of the wine program here." So he and my business partner connected a little bit, but I couldn't resist that night. I'm like, "Look, man, it's an honor to have you here." Um, because he also started, remember my cousin Eric Frotsky I mentioned earlier? He and my cousin Eric were in a band up here together. Wow. Um, so I, I mentioned our connection through there. I said, yeah, you play in a band with my cousin Eric. And, and I, I couldn't resist. I had to say, uh, and I, I, and I've, I know uh, that back in I, like 86, uh, you toured with my favorite punk rock band of all time, uh, Squirrel Bait out of Louisville, Kentucky. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I remember those guys. And I'm like, I was, I was waiting to like hear these stories about, oh yeah, they were so great. And like to hear him to tell all these tour stories, but it was just like, and I'm like, yeah, JD, that's the stupidest fucking question you could ask. Like he's toured with dozens of bands over the course of his life. He probably doesn't remember them at all, you know, but, um, yeah, that like quick sidebar squirrel bait. If you don't know about them, you I've need never, to introduce familiar, no. everybody out there needs to introduce themselves to them. They recorded an album and an EP between the years of 1985 and 1987. No one in the band was over the age of 16 when the albums were created. They are still my favorite punk rock band of all time. Wow. They are amazing. The lyrics are insane. And like, I wanted nothing more than when I was playing rock and roll for my voice to sound like the singer Peter Searcy's. Um, they they have so the, the several members of the band formed a band that became incredibly influential in the middle and late 1990s called Slint. Um, oh my God, and, I am obsessed with Spiderland. Yeah, one of my yeah, favorite albums of yep, all time. Exactly. Holy so cow! Squirrel, <laughs> squirrel, the several members of Squirrel Bait formed Slint. That is crazy. Yeah. I was actually just thinking about that band. I was should I bring them up because I, I feel like JD would like them. <laughs> oh yeah, they're uh, um, the Glenn Rhoda EP. The the um, is there's there's the there's still a song in that album that like I will always associate with hiking and like the the first time I climbed a mountain that song was in my head all day. Um, it's just this slow repetitive dirge with an amazing bridge in it. No vocals whatsoever. Cause you know, so much of the stuff that Slint did was instrumental. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen the documentary? No, I haven't. Oh dude, it's good. 
Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You yeah. Gotta, I'd probably, I'd probably love it. Yeah. It's you can you can watch it on YouTube. It's really really good. Okay. Yeah. Slint is. I I don't honestly Spiderland is the primary thing I know by them. Yeah. I haven't really listened to much else, but I don't know if you know this, but that album is 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 uh, worshipped in like online internet culture. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's how I know about it. Well, um, there's there is nothing. They were unlike anybody else out so there before at the time. time. I'm so I'm you know? that is a now this is turning into the music podcast. Yeah. I'm so interested in. <laughs> groups and albums that have a before their time sound mm-hmm. another one i always bring up i hope you've heard of these guys and if you haven't you need to listen to them immediately is a band called this heat Mm-mm. oh Not gosh familiar. no okay. uh, so a band called this heat they have an album called deceit that i believe came out in 1979 and hi so really quick this album came out in 1981 not that this matters at all but it was going to bother me if i didn't say something Anyways, back to our scheduled programming. It is it's post punk and it's unlike anything I have ever heard, especially considering that it technically came out in the seventies. And cool. uh just a lot of really experimental passages and weird, wacky vocal experiments. It's just super, super fun. Um yeah, I mean I could go on days and days about about bands. Um you know, Per Ubu. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, modern dance is another one that was just amazing to me. But yeah, yeah, we could go on about this, but uh, to to bring it all together, there there is something about music, especially when you're younger, because I really relate to that sentiment that you were talking about earlier about how every day you just feel like you live in a world that doesn't want you, or or even just a world that you don't relate to personally. Yeah. So for me. I, I grew up in a very strongly Catholic family and for whatever reason, deep within me, I just, it was hard for me to personally identify that. So I ended up listening to a lot of really dark, dark, like metal music all throughout mm-hmm. high school. And maybe it wasn't the most, uh, maybe not the greatest stuff to listen to, but at the end of the day, it was speaking to me in a way that I understood uh, a way in a way where I felt rejected by everything else in life except this kind of music and it's literally what helped me get through the day you know it's not like i was able to uh i don't know what else was like it's not like i could just throw on black eyed peas and be like okay i feel better now i had to listen to something that spoke to to my inner soul and help keep me going and sometimes i even feel like that today i listen to really weird wacky stuff and it still helps me to get through it's like oh this is these people are weird and like i i, I can relate to that i guess rage well. is rage is an ex an acceptable human emotion it, it it it's there for a reason it's been with us for a long time it's part of a self-defense mechanism but you know obviously there are far too many people in far too many ways for human beings to misdirect rage that, that when it hurts others right. and music while music can be used as a weapon as also an outlet for those emotions when when you're that age in particular um you know god how many times you know what between the ages of 13 and 18 you know was i locking myself in my room and like lip syncing with my headphones on to you know everything from sod to uh anthrax to like you know all these other like speed metal bands and and 
you know, n- nasty, aggressive punk rock bands. I mean, the the first like real punk rock album I ever remember owning on cassette was uh, was about thirty two minutes long, and it was a live performance uh, that the Misfits did oh, at wow. some ballroom in nineteen eighty one, and it's called Evil Live. <laughs> um, and I could, I mean, to this day, I can recite every in between song, like every word of every in between song banter because I listened to that so much, and but. You know, the you are you're so frustrated because when you're when you're that age, you are you are you're powerless. You know, like your parents and your teachers and your relatives and the your coaches are everybody is telling you what to do and they're not interested in listening to you. They're not interested in changing your direction based on what you want out of life. So you have to constantly go around what that path is to get your joy out of that. I mean, like I said, as long as like you know, as long as my grades were good and as long as like I was I was fulfilling family obligations, you know, like you know, as much as I love love it now and as much as I wanted to when I was even younger, like there was that point in my life in my early and mid teens where like I didn't want to go hunting and fishing. But that's what our family did and that's what, you know, my dad kicking my bed at 3:30 in the morning, you know, on a Saturday when I'm 14, get up, you're coming with us, you know, like I mean, I, we need your limit, you know, like I don't, he goes, I mean, I just remember him saying, I don't care if you sleep underneath the tarp while it rains all day, you know, I, we, we need your limit to, for the ducks today, you know? So, I mean, and eventually, yeah, then I got out there and then we started joking and then, you know, we started having fun and, you know, it's like anything else in life, you know, you don't want to wake up, you're not, you're never getting enough sleep when you're a teenager. So, um, but as long as I was participating in those things, even to a degree where I was just the bare minimum, then I could go out and find my joy elsewhere. Then I could read, you know, then I could, then I could read poetry and, or, and write poetry and I could go skateboarding and I could listen to weird music and, and all of these other things. Like as long as I was still swimming in that mainstream and following the path that I felt like they wanted, that I was being told I needed to follow, you know, I could pursue these things that made my life wider. But because you're doing that almost on the sly and you're doing that almost like with this sense of shame, you know, that's where a lot of that rage comes from is like, why can't I feel this free? Why can't I feel as free all the time as this music makes me feel, you know, and there's an anger that can come out of that. And, you know, like, uh, uh, Johnny Rotten's second band, public image limited. They had this song that was like a constant refrain. Anger is an energy over and over yeah. and over again the last minute of the song is him just repeating over and over again anger is an energy you know <clears throat> yeah that band is pretty wild but yeah. no speaking of repressed anger and, and frustration uh, so your daughter you speak of her and uh how she has been managing with pandemic and how she's kind of had that community stripped away from her but she has music as an outlet and that's great but I, I mean, how are things for you right now? How have you been feeling? And I know that's a loaded question because yeah. I recently read a piece that you did for Pioneer Press. I even have like notes of it on my phone because I thought it was, I thought it was such a a beautiful written statement. Obviously, you like to write and read because it shows in this in this post. I mean, there was like several lines and sentences that I put down because I thought were were just really beautiful and really touching. Uh, one in particular. And then we can just talk about this more. Sure. I also have to get, I also have to turn the camera back on, but you said service to us is far from just labor. It is therapeutic. It is an offering to others of our best selves to be deprived of that does us harm. 
It robs us of our worth, of our place in our communities. It opens us up to darkness. And I thought that was really beautiful and poetic, but really sad because I have certainly seen that myself in doing this work with this show and talking to people. I have seen how it how an event like this has the propensity to open people up in the hospitality community, op- open them up to darkness. And I'm wondering how you have personally faced and, and dealt with that darkness and how that's been going, if it's figuring better or worse or, or what? Well, it's a, it's a fucking roller coaster, man. You know, uh, look, uh, most people wind up in most of the people I know, and I'm speaking for myself here, definitely, but most people wind up in kitchens because they find out pretty quickly that they don't belong anywhere else or, or they're, they're made to feel that they don't belong anywhere else. Um, and you know, working in a, working in a kitchen was the first time that I was around people who had as many different passions as I did. Like the first real kit, like I, I had worked in a sandwich shop and I had worked in a hot dog place and, uh, a couple of different delis, when I was coming up, but the, like the first real kitchen I worked in, I got the job when I was 19. It was a, a, about a year after I had moved up here. And uh, I was working in the kitchen at a nightclub in downtown Minneapolis called Rogue. And my sous chef was a painter and sculptor who ha- was also a musician who one night when we, when we were prepping and waiting for the dinner service to get going, uh, gave me a 20 minute lecture on the virtues of steely dan when at the time like all i wanted to listen to was anthrax and helmet and uh and mud honey and oh and radio music was bullshit i just started to discover jazz a little bit let's i'll be fair here and that's how he got in with me he's like well you listen do you what do you listen to jazz i was like yeah i love miles davis and john coltrane and you know ornette coleman and he's like well okay and he he like reached in his, his bicycle messenger bag and he pulled out a, a Steely Dan album and he put it on the CD player in the kitchen and he made me listen to Steely Dan in a different way than I had ever heard before. So that, you know, again, kicked open another door into my life. And, um, but, but going back to that, like I was, I was like, okay, wow, this is cool. I'm, I'm with my people, you know, like I'm, I'm with people who know that there are all these other different exciting things in life. And then later on, I was working at an Italian restaurant in downtown Minneapolis and I was at a pretty low point in my life. I was like, I was out of money and I was misbehaving and I had a bad group of friends and I knew I had to get my shit together. And I, I just met my, the woman who would become my wife and I was falling in love with her. And, you know, I didn't want to be the loser who kept getting his phone turned off. (laughs) Uh, So I remember being at work one night and the chef, chef Wade Wiestling uh, did pre-shift right in front of my cold station and he opened up this 19th century travelogue and he started explaining that the dishes on the menu tonight were influenced by uh, a region outside Rome and he's reading from this this 19th century British traveler saying that the guy thought it was very unique that despite its proximity to the Vatican the people who farmed and raised crops on the hills of Rome still incorporated pagan practices into their planting and harvesting. And I just remember that moment hitting me like a ton of bricks and like everything fell into place like Tetris. It was like, you know, A plus B equals C. Every passion I have in life can be put into flavor on a plate. And that's when I was like, I want to be that guy. That's, I want to be him. And 
over the course of the years that I pursued kitchen, like its culture seemed to fit me. Like there was regimentation and it was, it was a place for, like I said, for all of your energies to get put into doing a job well, but it had to happen quickly. And you had to, you couldn't be a lone wolf. You had to learn how to communicate and lean on other people while you were doing that. Um, and the more, it was the first time in my life where I not only felt like I could rely on, that I knew that I had, I had no choice but to rely on people, but I also for the first time in my life, got a lot of joy out of them relying on me. Like knowing that I, if I didn't show up, if, if I wasn't there on time, if I didn't have my mise en place put together, you know, I would disappoint a lot of people and I could screw up a lot of experiences. Never mind the guests out there. It was just the cooks that I really liked working next to. I needed to be at least as good, if not better than them, in order for things to go smoothly and for everybody to have a good night. And then later on, I got to realize, wow, like I'm, what I'm doing is actually making people happy, you know? And when you make people happy, of course, that gives something back to you. Like when you can palpably see that and feel that, I mean, it's, I, I, I talk all the time about how, you know, cooks in particular, but you know, hospitality workers in general are instant gratification junkies. You know, like we know right away whether that sea bass that went up in the window has been seared perfectly or not. You know, we know if it's been seasoned properly. And if, if we don't, we find out pretty quickly. Um, guests tell us that, but also at the same time, like you can feel that happy energy in a room from people eating delicious food and having a great time doing it. And it becomes addictive. The adrenaline rush of the line obviously that's that's addictive rewarding yourself by giving others a good experience working next to them that's addictive being relied upon is addictive and then later on when you make different uh different chapters in your career get kicked open like when you start taking on leadership roles that becomes addictive as well i'm leading people now i have to be an example to people now and that's also when you get told sometimes that okay you're good at something that, you know, after you've been doing something for a while and things start coming to you second nature, that then you start to see even more rewards from it. So to move that forward to where we're at in March of 2020, all of that stuff gets taken away. Like months previous to the pandemic coming through, like in January, when we started to see some serious shit going down in Seattle, you know, there are a lot of us who are still kind of poo-pooing it like, oh, it's not going to get that bad. Yeah, that, you know, they, they just weren't prepared for it we still were the place where I was at, we still made contingency plans in case there had to be a blanket, you know, uh, order across the country. So we were like, okay, well, obviously something like this, they're going to take away dining and we'll have to go to something that's like just takeout and delivery. So, okay. So I, my colleagues and I did a ton of work and we put all these schedules together that were uh, evenly distributing hours between everyone. Um, we changed the menus to make it easier to prep and more uniform to prep and more geared toward uh, a takeout situation. And then when we heard all these rumors about, you know, the governor is going to make an order, we were like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll be ready for it. But for the order com to come down that we couldn't do anything. Like we still expected restaurants to be a place where people, people were going to be able to come and, at least know we were there for the community. Like restaurants have always been a place that no matter what is going on in, in the world, positive or negative, people can gather and share that emotion, you know? I mean, even after September 11th in 2001, 
people still came out to eat in restaurants and, and watch the rubble from the towers be picked through, you know, so we could all process what was going on. And for all of that to get completely taken away from us, that took away what we wanted to do most, and that was provide sanctuary, you know, and all of a sudden we, d- we didn't know what to do. We didn't, we had, we had no way as a hospitality community to be our best selves. That, that was, that made our head spin, you know? So then somebody like, you know, Justin and Brian and, and, and Leo Jude from, uh, from Sheesh on Grand Avenue, um, and Brandon Rand- Randolph of, a. uh, uh of uh, the food truck. I'm sorry. I can't remember the name right now, but you know, that's when we all get together. We're like, okay, we got a bunch of food in our coolers. Let's just give it away to people who need it. You know? And so we did that for a while and we weren't getting any money out of that and it wasn't helping our bottom line, but we knew we were doing the right thing. And we continued to, to anywhere we could do the right thing. And then we started to solicit donations. Um, and when I say we, I got to give all the credit to, to Brian and Justin for that. This was their idea and it was their hard work, you know, getting all this done. I was, I was just there to help stock the shelves and help the food get out. But th- that was us fighting for any sense of worth that we could give ourselves because going to work here around people who understand the way that you feel there, you, you're, you're working with people who have come up in the same vocation that you did. And that's, I, I use the word vocation on purpose. You know, it's, it's not, a, it, it's not just a job or it's not just a career. It's, it's a vocation because it, like I mentioned earlier, it's spiritually rewarding. You know, it's, it keeps the roof over your head, but at the same time you go to work every day, knowing that there's a highly likely chance that you're going to be one way or another, the be- your efforts are one way or another going to be the best part of someone's week. And, uh, and again, like to have that purpose taken away is, is really tough. It immediately shoved a bunch of us into an introspective mindset that, we haven't had to deal with for a long time. And again, when I say that people, a lot of people who wind up in in kitchens or in restaurants in general, haven't fit in anywhere else, it's because there are a lot of other things behind them. You know, the, when I mentioned the adrenaline and when I mentioned the, um, the constant work that one puts into a shift at a restaurant, a lot of us have used that to get away from the darker parts of ourselves that we run away from, you know, and, you know, because you've always got something to do. And then, wow, you know, we got through an end of the shift, you know, it was, it was really shitty. I want to go to the bar and, and drink it away with my friends and bitch about it, you know, or God, that was a really good time. Let's go celebrate and go to the bar and talk to my friends and, and think about it. You know, it becomes this merry-go-round that prevents you from actually dealing with what you're running away from or from what, what is chasing you. And so now all of a sudden, a lot of people I, I know, myself included, have had to really think about these things that have been chasing us for years. And for, for better or worse, we're looking a lot of ugly things in the face. And some of those things are bigger than some of us think we can handle. And we don't know where to go for help with that. You know, our industry has been plagued for essentially since its inception without without thought given to the fact that we are we are worthwhile members of our community we know we are secretly we don't take too much pride in that but for i guess what i'm leading up to is there isn't there isn't healthcare available in our industry the way that it is in many others um much less mental health care you know it's 
I feel kind of shitty sometimes. Like I don't want to, I would never compare the severity of what anybody in uh, the armed forces goes through compared to what we go through in restaurants. But there is, there is such a, a level of stress and thanklessness associated with what we do that can be cumulative, you know, um, cortisol is a hell of a drug and the longer you spend in this industry, the more it can accumulate in your body and the more it can affect not only your mental health, but your physical health as well. And so for all of those things to kind of come to fruition right now during the pandemic and for us to have nowhere to go, like, you know, even if you did have a job that held healthcare now you don't have that job anymore. So you can't go talk to somebody that you need that can give you the help that you, that you're realizing you might need. Mm -hmm. So what do you think that has done to the industry as a whole now that you are all being forced to look inward? I mean, I imagine it's going to be for the good overall, but it seems like hell to go through. And so what does that even look like and mean for you and your peers right now then? Um, it's look, I, you know, I had a, a couple months into it. Um, I called a, a friend of mine who had moved out to, who was still in the hospitality industry. He'd moved out to Seattle with his wife and his daughter. Um, and he, he actually admitted to me, he's like, you're the first, you're the first uh, other person in the business that I've spoken to since all this happened. I'm like, why? What's going on? He goes, well, um, I sold my restaurant and I moved to Washington partly because I, I took a job in a retirement community as the culinary director. Um, he goes, I just, I, I knew that I needed a nine to five job. I wanted to be around for my daughter more. And, you know, I wanted my wife to be able to pursue her career path a little bit easier too. And for us to still be a partnership in our marriage. Um, he goes, I feel really guilty about the fact that I still have a job and that I've got health coverage and I'm seeing all of my friends like in a really bad way. Like I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm doing well, which first of all, I mean, that, that's, it's really shitty that he feels that he has to think that way, that he has to feel that way, you know, but again, it's like that, that's a side effect of part of what our industry does. But, and I was just like, dude, you should not feel that way at all. You should be definitely proud of what you're doing. I want your job. I wish I was in the situation that you were in right, right. now. But we started talking about what some of the fallout of this is going to be. And I, I think some of the fallout is people who have run kitchens for a while and realized how much of a toll it's taken on them are going to start looking for jobs like that are going to start looking for nine to five type jobs with benefits for a bunch, bunch of different reasons. Not the least of which is the fact that the population in our country is aging and there are more people who are going to be living that way. And these are also people who have been dining out in restaurants for the majority of their adult lives and they want better food than the mashed potatoes and hamburger gravy that a lot of, you know, gated retirement communities typically serve in the dining hall. Um, I think a lot of it also is we have a huge opportunity to really look at what's been wrong with our industry, how hard we've been forced to work for how little money without benefits for a long time and simply refuse to go back to the way things were. And I see leaders in our community, particularly here in the Twin Cities, who definitely feel that way. And as things reopen, they are restructuring their businesses or those people who are thinking about opening up new places now are looking at it in a very different way, making sure that, okay, anybody who comes to work for me, whether they're a server or a dishwasher or a cook is going to get a living wage. I'm going to charge a little bit more money for it. I'm personally going to take a little less money, money for it, but we're also going to let people know that, um, 
uh, service charge is just part of the dining experience, you know, and I, I really hope that we don't rush to going back to the way things were. I, I really think we have an opportunity here to start treating ourselves better. And I, I'm seeing a lot of hope from our community because one of the biggest problems that we all know about American hospitality and food systems is the fact that nobody wants to pay for what food actually costs. You know, and I think there are a lot of people who are understanding that having missed restaurants and bars and gathering places, you know, places of fellowship over this pandemic, they're realizing what life is like without them. And they're realizing that it, it comes at a premium. And as we go back to the way things are, I think we're going to, we're going to see people accepting a little bit more that, you know, a $15 hamburger is probably pretty realistic. Yeah. It cr- kind of created this, well, I hope it's going to create this Phoenix from the ashes type thing where it's yeah. almost like the whole industry was burned to the ground, but now it can rise up again anew. But of course, that's going to require effort on the the industry's part. Mm-hmm. And I, I would hope that that effort is taken seriously because, like you said, and so many other people have echoed the same sentiment. So much needs to change. What better time than now? Right. Because it's ripe. Ab- absolutely. You know, and, you know, and then if you want to think about also, you know, the fact that most of us of a certain ethnic persuasion have to take a hard look at ourselves and realize that wherever we are in our vocation, we have gotten there next to people of color. And I, okay, let me put it, let me put it this way. Like when, when I was working at Pronto, when I was working at the Italian restaurant that I mentioned earlier, when I realized that being a chef was something I wanted to do, I, my station was parallel to, or not parallel, but uh, perpendicular to the hotline where the dining room cooks worked. And they were all, uh, they were all immigrants from Mexico aside from the sous chef and the lead line cook. Uh, I would just, I would watch him on saute station all night. And it was like, he was in a dream all evening. He never got flustered. He put up the food fastest and all of his food was beautiful and and plated the best way. And I was just like, well, if I'm going to get anywhere, I got to be him. You know, so I fought and I, I begged and I, I asked for months to, to get a night working on the line next to him. And finally, I got a shot at being trained on saute next to, next to this guy, Gabino. And Gabino, Gabino taught me how to be the line cook that I ended up being for the next 20 years of my career. You know, his shit was always wired tight. He never ran out of me's. He was never chopping anything to order. Like, and he kept almost everything in his head. Like he's one of the best line cooks I have ever worked next to in my entire life. And I learned so much from him about technique and about organization. And I am here because somebody who left their home and their country came to ours to make a better life for themselves and to contribute to our country, you know, to, to the way it functions and the way that it's fed. And so few people, they've been vilified by an entire segment of our population for the last 25 years, if not long, you know, obviously longer than that. And that, I mean, and that's just plain wrong. Like those of us who, who have achieved certain levels in our career have to, you know, we owe it to everybody in our country, regardless of, of race, color, or creed to scream from the rooftops that immigrants and people of color are the foundation of deliciousness in our country. 
And we got to, as much as we contribute to it ourselves, we have to step away from that and give credit where credit's due. And we got to bring that into the sunlight. You know, that, that can't just be something in, in the back storeroom or in a, uh, uh, in a, you know, in a basement kitchen anymore that has to be first and foremost we have to understand that the flavors we love and the way they're prepared have all come from communities of color and i think that i i, I see a lot more of that I, I i see the light coming but we can't think that everything's okay we have to keep pushing and we have to keep working and we have to keep making noise about it this and so many other changes uh, i'm hoping personally can really become a reality in the next five to 10 years. Cause I think it's important to take a, a long outlook yeah. right now because things are the way they are. And we, we, we have to stop thinking about change in terms of an overnight thing. I, I feel like change is going to happen so gradually that it's going to be hard to notice it and maybe appreciate it in the way that we may expect. So in my mind, five, 10 years, lots of things needed to almost do a complete 180 mm-hmm. in terms of what you just mentioned and and other practices done in the industry. And it's, it's up to you guys. Well, it's up to everyone. Yeah. It's up to everyone. A- it's up to people it like me to make sure I'm highlighting the right stories. It's up to people like you to make sure that you're actually creating and enforcing guidelines in your establishments so that we can better, we can reflect a more diverse community, but then also create a healthier community and a healthier culture in the industry health health is a great way to put it you know and and again like i think that's probably number three on the list of the the two things that i put forth that i think are going to continue to change in the food scene is you know i really do think that you know physical and mental health is you're going to see it reflected in the kind of food that we're preparing um you know the the license for a chef like the license for a chef has always been, you know, uh, the, the most freedom you can ever have is when you're creating a menu that's just food that you want to eat. Okay. Well, most of us know that it doesn't matter how much you like something. If you eat it and prepare it all the time, it, it does begin to lose its luster and you get spoiled, you know, and then all of us, you know, a lot of us <laughs> of a certain age, and it's not even of a certain age, like people in their early 20s who work in kitchens are seeing effects of it too. You know, if you're constantly surrounded by fatty burgers and French fries and burritos and, you know, foie gras, um, and you get to indulge in those things, it affects your health. It affects your energy. It affects the way that you live. I mean, you like you will physically start to crave braised kale because your body is missing it so much. And so I, I think that as menus are rewritten and everyone's been getting takeout from uh, of lasagna and Thai noodles and, and all these things that are delicious but shouldn't be eaten three, four, five times a week, I think you're going to see more places that are reflecting that by putting more vegetable-based preparations that experiment with different, bigger, bolder flavors on their menu. Um, we've had a lot of time to study We've had a whole lot of time at home to look through cookbooks and watch cooking shows on TV and travel logs and, you know, uh, old, uh, old episodes of, uh, of no reservations, yeah. you know, so there's really no excuse for us to not come out of the gate, introducing people to food that is delicious, but is also good for them. That isn't just hundred percent indulgence all the time. I think that that was, uh, I think that that was something that we got too used to for too long and it's not benefiting us as well. 
Well, I, I think it's it's good to cap it around here, but I had to ask, do you have any specific directives that you can give people on how they can support the industry right now? Other than, obviously it's always order takeout, actually yeah. go to places, but if someone is really passionate about this industry and they want to find new and unique ways to help, and I haven't asked this question in a while actually, but I feel like you're one of the best people to ask. I, I don't know, new and creative ways to help the industry right now if someone really wants to take action. Ask the people that you love the most in the hospitality industry how they're doing and make them answer you honestly. Send them an email, you know, call up the restaurant, get, get, the, e- get the email of the person who works behind the counter that you like so much and, and just send them an email saying, hey, I, I really appreciate the fact that your restaurant is open and that you're working so hard in it. How are you doing? Is there anything in your life that you need help with that I could possibly help you with? I mean, you'll be surprised at how many people will break down and open up with you for something as simple as that. You might get somebody saying, you know, you know, I, uh, I don't have a winter coat. You know, you have an old winter coat. Bring it to that person at the restaurant. You know, ask questions like that and you'll be surprised at some of the answers you can get. And even if even if nothing comes back from that, they know that they're being cared about. They know that they're that you are that they are your concern. That is incredibly helpful. Um, you know, another thing you can do instead of tipping people with cash, go out to uh, go out to Target, go to Holiday, go to just buy a bunch of like ten dollar gift certificates, ten dollar cards. Like, give them to people in give them as tips to people in the hospitality industry. Um, in addition, because quite frankly, you know, uh, a lot of restaurants are operating on a no tipping policy right now, which is. Um, which is very, very important. Everybody is getting a living wage and it's bringing a lot more equity to the way that people are working in restaurants right now. But, you know, dropping five $10 Target cards at the bar on your way out and letting somebody else decide how to distribute them to the staff is a pretty cool gesture. That's a nice thing to do for people. It lets them pick up toothpaste and toilet paper and, you know, anything else that they can... <laughs> the... Uh, the, this this you know the sliding plastic box that they put you know things in that they don't need you know um i i just think that you know again those are a nice little gesture to let hospitality people know that you see them and you see the hard work that they're doing and you know that what they're doing uh is a pretty difficult occupation yeah yeah there's something truly beautiful about small gestures because those often mean the most whether it be a quick email or dropping something at the bar that they didn't expect that might help them just get through that week or something. Totally. But JD, it was such a pleasure to do this today. I I didn't expect how, uh, how kindred spirits we would be. You you (laughs) almost got me, you almost got me wanting to talk about music the whole time, but I had to, I had to cap it. Oh, I know, man. Yeah. yeah, You can't have one without the other. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, man, like for all those nights that I, you know, that I was in a band and we were out playing live, like there's playing live with a band is, the exact same sensation as you get rocking it out on the line next to somebody in a busy yeah. restaurant. It's the, it, it feels the exact same way. So I'm, uh, I, I'm incredibly honored and grateful that you, that you wanted me to be a part of this conversation. Likewise. Likewise. Hope I did you proud. Yeah, you did. Thank you so much. My man. Thank you. Hey there, thanks for sticking around. I'll include any and all ways to help out JD in the description of this episode. 
Be sure to follow the podcast on the official Instagram page, which you can now find at food under fire pod. You can find it on Facebook as well under the same name. Keep in mind that I recently launched a Patreon for the podcast. Patreon is a service where for as little as $3 a month, you can get access to bonus content and merch. It's optional, but if you're interested, visit patreon.com slash food under fire. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash food under fire. Find the link in the description as well. If you enjoy the show, consider subscribing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You could also share with a friend or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And that's it for this episode, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.